pours, and I guess when it snows, the sewer backs up. So thank you for your, your uh, flexibility and understanding with this situation. And uh, we're not going to let it distract us from worshiping our Savior, because he's way greater than a backed-up sewer. Amen? Amen. Amen. You guys are a little slow on the amen there. All right. Well, turn, if you would, in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11 as we continue through Matthew's gospel this morning. Matthew chapter 11 is where we will be today. Now, if you were with us two weeks ago, uh, you'll remember that we looked at John's question about Jesus. Are you the Messiah or should we look for another? And we really saw how John had these unmet expectations about Jesus, about what the Messiah would be doing, right? John had particular uh, conceived notions that did not end up panning out. But we heard Jesus' response to John, where Jesus reminds John, no, I actually am God's anointed one. I am the Savior. I am the Son of God. Don't let your expectations keep you from me, John. Do not be offended by me, but believe in me and be blessed, was was really Jesus' response to John. But in this morning's text, as we continue into the next portion of Matthew chapter 11, we see Jesus turn now to talk to the disciples. We see him turning to talk to John's, uh, not John's disciples, excuse me, but the crowds about their own response to John the Baptist. And we'll see in this morning's passage what Jesus says about John really reveals more about Jesus. What Jesus says about John reveals more about Jesus' true identity. Ultimately, that Jesus is not just the Messiah, but he's Yahweh, the God of Israel incarnate. So let's read our text starting in verse 7. We'll read down to verse 19. And it looks like we have an error on that slide, but don't let that throw you off. Matthew 11, starting in verse 7. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of woman, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to him in prayer as we come to his holy word. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for the scriptures, uh, Lord, that we are able to gather every Sunday to hear what your word says, to grow in our knowledge and understanding of you, to have our hearts transformed by your spirit, that we would be more like Christ. And Father, we pray that as we come to your word today, that we would, uh, we would see Christ Jesus magnified before us in the words on our pages. That as we see what Jesus says about John, we would realize the greater implications about Jesus. 
and that we would marvel all the more at the greatness of our Lord. Holy Spirit, come, open our eyes to the glory of Christ today. Help me to preach him faithfully and truly according to your word, that you would be honored, Lord. And we ask all of this in Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well, we see three things in this text this morning, three points here. Uh, we're going to see Jesus say some important things about John, and then we're going to see Jesus turn to address the crowds about their own response. We see Jesus says that John is preparing the way of the Lord in verses 7 through 10. We see that Jesus says that John is preceding the day of the Lord in verses 11 through 15. And finally, we see that the generation of John and Jesus ends up rejecting them in 16 through 19. And now, this is one of those portions in Scripture that doesn't have um, commands on the page for us to do. Right? This isn't where Jesus says, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. The purpose of our passage this morning is to teach us more about Jesus Christ. Are there implications and applications? Absolutely. But the biggest thing we could take away from this text is a higher view of Christ Jesus. Now, looking over to verse 7, as we saw last week, Jesus answers John's disciples. He answers John's question about whether he's the Messiah. And now in verse 7, he sends them back to John in Herod's prison to deliver this message to the Baptist. But as they are leaving, Jesus now turns to speak to the crowds that we discover have been there the whole time, apparently. There's no mention of them up until this point, but apparently they're listening in to John's conversa or Jesus' conversation with John's disciples. And it is now time for Jesus to speak to the crowds concerning John. And so we see in verse 7, Jesus asks them an underlying question. He says, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? What did you go out into the wilderness to see? What were you expecting? Why did you go out into the wilderness? What were you hoping to find? And this is kind of a rhetorical question, and so Jesus gives them some rhetorical answers here. The first option he gives them is a reed shaken by the wind in verse 7. Since you go out in the wilderness to see a reed shaken by the wind. And this kind of has a double meaning, right? Reeds were a common plant in the wilderness of Judea, so a reed shaken by the wind would be nothing out of the ordinary. It's just the normal scenery in the wilderness, not something you would make a perilous journey to go see. It's also an expression for a weak person who's blown about to and fro by other people's Opinions And John, of course, is neither of these things. John the Baptist was not an ordinary person. He was not an ordinary fixture of the wilderness of Judea. And he was certainly not a man who was blown to and fro. He was a man of fierce conviction. And so the answer, of course, is no. You didn't go into the wilderness to see a reed blown about by the wind. The second option Jesus offers the crowd is a man dressed in soft clothing, verse 8. A man dressed in soft clothing. This is a person who lived in the upper crust of society, who was wealthy, socially admired, probably sucking up to the kings and ruling class. Uh, but these kinds of people, Jesus says, are not found in the wilderness. You don't find these, these uh, aristocratic nobles dressed in their fine clothes, dirtying themselves in the wilderness of Judea. Instead, Jesus says, these kinds of people dwell in kings' houses. That's where you can find them. You wouldn't go into the wilderness to see them. And ironically, of course, where is John at this point? He's in the prison in Herod's palace, so he is in a king's house, uh, but as a prisoner, not as someone who's trying to get social advantage. He had no intention of pleasing King Herod, and he himself wore camel's hair. Right? He doesn't match this description of a man dressed in soft 
clothing. So this is not the reason they would go into the wilderness either. Jesus has, has told us, he's told the crowds that John's not ordinary. He's not playing along with societal conventions. Uh, the crowds had not gone out to see him for these reasons. They had gone out to see him for a very different reason, as verse 9 tells us. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? And the answer here is yes. They had gone out to see a prophet. John was a prophet, of course. He's proclaiming a message given by God to the people, a message very in line with the prophets of the Old Testament, a message of repentance and salvation. And the people had gone out to see this strange man eating bugs, wearing camel's hair, uh, proclaiming this radical message and performing this new kind of baptism. They had gone out to hear this man prophesy. But Jesus points out something in verse 9 that apparently the people missed. John is not merely a prophet, but more than a prophet. He's more than a prophet. John had a unique role that no other prophet in biblical history had. He was sent to prepare the way of the Lord. And that's what Jesus tells us in verse 10. He says, This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. And Jesus indicates here, by quoting from the Old Testament prophet Malachi, that John the Baptist was actually foretold 400 years before his birth. He had a unique and special purpose. Now, we, we see a little bit of a difference between the exact wording of Jesus' quotation here and the Old Testament uh, citation of this verse, but that really just has to do with the fact Jesus is quoting from the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. But the purpose is clearly the same. The meaning is clearly the same. We see the Lord speaking about this messenger he will send to prepare the way. But let's turn back to Malachi for a moment just to get the full picture, the full uh, context of what Jesus is saying here. Turn back to Malachi chapter 3. And that is the book right before Matthew. If you're turning to the left, Matthew uh, comes right after Malachi. Malachi chapter 3, we'll read verses 1 through 4. Now the main theme of the book of Malachi is God's pronouncement of judgment upon the people of Israel for their unfaithfulness. But woven throughout the book of Malachi are promises of salvation. Uh, and all of this really centers around this coming day of the Lord. Uh, the Lord coming to his people in a new and awesome way. And so keep that in mind as we read verses 1 through 4 here. <clears throat> Behold, says the Lord, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord who you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight... Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Malachi, just like Jesus, speaks of this coming messenger, this individual who's coming to prepare the way of Yahweh, the God of Israel. He's coming to make things ready for when God draws near to his people. He's a herald. The king is coming. Get ready. The king is coming. Prepare yourselves. That was John's purpose. That was his 
mission. And Jesus says, this guy right here in Malachi 3, 1, this messenger, the Lord's messenger, is John the Baptist. That's who he is. That's his identity. There's no other one but him. And this messenger is going to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. And what will God do when he comes to his people? He will purify them. He'll come into his temple and purify them and their worship. So that God's people once again offer to him pleasing sacrifices. Now, we shouldn't expect this to refer to uh, the temple being rebuilt and sacrifices, animal sacrifices being made again. 1 Peter chapter 2 tells us that this is fulfilled in the work of Christ, who comes and dies for God's people, who purifies them by his blood, who makes us a spiritual priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices to God through Christ. But don't miss the major implication of what Jesus is saying here. Right? John is the messenger preparing the way. But again, who is he preparing the way for? It's for God, Yahweh, God Almighty. God is the one who's coming to his people. God's the one who's coming back to his temple. God is the one restoring his people. And the gospel authors, Matthew and Mark especially, see this passage here being fulfilled in the coming of Christ. I think about that for a minute. If John is the messenger preparing the way for the Lord, and the coming of the Lord happens in the coming of Christ, we're left with no other possibility from Jesus' perspective that Jesus is the Lord, that Jesus is Yahweh. That's the unavoidable implication. If John is the messenger of the Lord and John's preparing the way for Jesus, Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh. He is God in the flesh. He is fully divine. And that's a pretty significant thing to say to the Jewish people, isn't it? That's something that you would think demands a response from the crowds of Israel. You would think that they would have some kind of mind-blowing response to that reality. After all, God had been silent for 400 years between Malachi and Matthew. The people would receive no prophecies, nothing from God, and yet here's John prophesying that this is coming. Now the promised return of the King of Heaven occurs just as Malachi promised. What should the people be doing? Repenting of their sin, reforming their worship, devoting themselves to Christ. And this reality is so amazing that it continues to demand a response from you and I today. But the crowds don't really seem to be responding as they should. They're interested in Jesus. They're curious about Jesus. They find him to be something of a novelty. Well, he does these amazing works. He does these great things. Yeah, he's a pretty good guy to have around. He's, yeah, he's, he's pretty interesting, right? It's kind of like when you, you, know, you hear a radio show or watch a YouTube video of somebody you'd never heard of before, and they have some compelling points, and you go tell your friend, hey, did you ever listen to that guy? He's pretty interesting, right? What do you think about him? That's the level of where they're at with Jesus. The problem is that mere interest and curiosity is so far below what the Holy One of Israel is worthy of. God is not a curiosity to be marveled at. He is the one to be worshipped. But the crowds haven't grasped that reality. They haven't understood the implication of John being Malachi's messenger. They haven't understood that Jesus is the God of Israel incarnate. They're not picking up the clues everywhere in front of them. 
There's been no public repentance and reform. And the fact that Jesus is going to be crucified by the crowds of Judea proves this. Uh, the people of Israel, in other words, have missed both the messenger and the one he proclaimed. John comes to prepare the way of the Lord, and the people miss it. But Jesus isn't done challenging the crowd. This would be enough, right? This is an amazing reality for them to consider, but he's not done. The, the crowd needs to realize that John's ministry and purpose precedes the day of the Lord as well. And we see that in verses 11 through 15. John precedes the day of the Lord. As we look at verse 11, we see Jesus starting to give his own evaluation of John the Baptist. He starts to give his own uh, estimation of John. And in verse 11, Jesus says something quite astounding. He says that among those born of women, there's arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. That's pretty high praise from Jesus, right? There has arisen no one greater among women than John the Baptist. Now, Jesus, again, is dealing with the improper estimation of the crowds. The crowds don't have a right understanding of John the Baptist. But Jesus makes clear here that he esteems John so highly that there was never a person born before him that was greater than John. Now, this expression, born of women, this just refers to general humanity meaning that up until that point in history, up until John came on the scene, there was no person more important than John. In God's redemptive history, up until this point, there was nobody more important than John the Baptist. Now think about that from the perspective of a Jewish audience. Who are some of the other people born throughout history that had major significance to Jesus' Jewish audience? Abraham? Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David. These are massive figures. And it would seem that all of these individuals would be greater than John. Right? Abraham, I mean, he's the patriarch of patriarchs, right? He's the one who starts this whole story of God's covenant with Israel. Moses, Moses was the greatest servant in God's house, the book of Hebrews tells us. David? It's the greatest king in Israel. And yet Jesus says not one of them is greater than John the Baptist. Why is this the case? Well, John's greatness wasn't because of who he himself was, but the one he came to proclaim. John's greatness didn't come because he was a great man, but because he had such a great position and responsibility. Being the herald the one to proclaim the coming of the Son of God. No one else in history had the same kind of role that John did in the same kind of way. Sure, we see prophecies of Christ in the Old Testament, but John is the messenger. That's a unique role. It's kind of like Mary, right? Luke says, uh, recording the angel's statement to her, she is most blessed among women, not because she herself was so great, but because of the, the role that God had given her in salvation history. So John is the greatest of all people who had lived up until that point. And it seems that the crowds probably just viewed John as this prophetic reformer. Those were common in Jesus' day. People coming in, proclaiming these things. There was many like that. They didn't grasp the true uniqueness and greatness of his mission and ministry. But what does Jesus do? He esteems John very highly here. 
no one greater. But then in the same breath, Jesus does something a little confusing. He says, John is the greatest one ever born among women, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. How does that work? How can this be? If John's the greatest person born in history to this point, how could there be someone greater than him? Is Jesus contradicting himself? No. Jesus is really making a point here about the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant eras. See, the implication of Jesus' statement here is that John stands on the outside looking into the kingdom of heaven. And what I mean when I say that is, is not that John's outside of salvation or that John isn't going to be in the kingdom of heaven, but that John is looking forward to it, just like Abraham, Jacob, David, Moses, all the people who came before him. They looked forward to the coming kingdom, but they did not live in the time of its fulfillment. 1 Peter chapter 1, 10-12 talks about this. Peter writes, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This doesn't mean Old Testament believers were outside of salvation, but that they didn't live in the time of the fulfillment that Christ brings. They didn't live in that new covenant time. And so John's role is preparatory. He's living in the era, uh, the era of preparation. He's getting the people ready. He's proclaiming this message. He's preceding what is coming. But he's going to die in chapter 14 of Matthew. He's not going to see Jesus crucified, resurrected, and ascended. He's not going to see with his own eyes on earth this fulfillment come to pass. And so really, you know, Jesus' statement clues us into the fact that John is the last of the Old Testament prophets. He's the last of the Old Testament prophets, the last of the prophets under that old covenant who are looking forward to the coming kingdom. So again, John's not outside of salvation, but Jesus' point here is that he's not going to get to live under the, the blessings of life in the new covenant. He's not going to get to experience those things. He's looking from the outside forward to that era. And that's what Jesus means when he says that the least in the kingdom of heaven, the least person who uh, on the other side of the cross, we could say, believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, enters into that new covenant and lives in the new covenant era, that least of those kinds of people receive greater blessing and have a greater standing in Christ, so to speak, than John during his earthly ministry. That's what Jesus is getting at here. And think about what that means for the crowds. Where do they need to be pointing their attention to? Back to the Old Covenant or forward to the New Covenant, to the Kingdom of Heaven? That's the better place to be. If the least person in the Kingdom of Heaven is greater than John, then you want to be in the Kingdom of Heaven. That's where the most blessing is to be found. As we look to verse 12, we see that ever since John came on the scene preaching about the kingdom of heaven, and the kingdom began advancing forward, that it had suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. What does that mean? Uh, there, there has been no shortage of ink spilled about this 
because uh, Jesus' words in the Greek, they're not totally black and white. They could be translated a couple different ways. Um, but it seems given the context, the best understanding of what Jesus is saying here is that the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully opposed, violently opposed by its violent opponents. The kingdom of heaven, since John the Baptist's day, has been opposed by its violent opponents. And think about what we've seen in Matthew's gospel so far. We've seen opposition from King Herod. John is in jail, after all, for preaching righteousness. We've seen opposition from the Pharisees, who have big problems with what Jesus is doing. We've seen opposition from the demonic realm. And we'll see the ultimate violent opposition to the kingdom at the end of the story, when Jesus is crucified. This should not be the response to the kingdom of heaven, right? It is a kingdom of peace and righteousness, a kingdom of good news, the true knowledge of God. And yet it's been violently opposed, Jesus says, by the very people that it came to first. But Jesus isn't surprised by this reception. We, we see in verse 13 that the entire Old Covenant up to John, the prophets and the law, everyone who came before not only uh, prophesied about this coming kingdom, but Jesus is making a connection here to help us think about how those prophets in the Old Testament were treated. They were not treated well. They were received horribly. They were rejected by the people they came to, just like John and Jesus are. They were imprisoned. They were exiled. Some cases even executed. Why would they treat John any different? Why would the message of the kingdom of heaven be received any differently when God's people had rejected his prophets in ages past? But again, John's not quite like all the prophets of the Old Testament. He's unique. And Jesus says something amazing about John in verse 14. He says, if you are willing to accept it, in other words, to the crowds, if you can listen to what I'm saying and believe what I'm about to connect for you from the Old Testament, if you're going to believe my words, then believe that John is Elijah who is to come. John is Elijah who is to come. Now, that's not a nickname for John. That's not a second name that John has. Jesus is making another reference to Malachi. Malachi chapter 4. Let's turn back there real quick. Hopefully you remember how to get there from a couple minutes ago. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. The very end of Malachi. Malachi chapter 4, 5, and 6. <clears throat> it's right before that page that says the New Testament on it. Um, here is what Malachi prophesies. This is God speaking, of course. He says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Malachi 4, 5 through 6. Now these are the last words of the Old Testament. The last words God sent to his people. And if we look all the way back to the beginning of Malachi 4, short chapter, but we see Malachi mention this coming day. Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven when the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. This is a day of judgment here. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts. This day that is coming brings judgment. But we see in verse 2 
it brings something else too. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You will go out leaping like calves from the stall. That's a joyful picture. And so this day that's coming brings salvation and judgment. Judgment for the wicked and salvation for God's people. That's what this coming day promises. And in verse 5, God says he's going to send Elijah before this day comes. When you see Elijah, you can expect that there is something going on. Now the Jews, of course, reading Malachi chapter 4, they're expecting to see the prophet Elijah come down from heaven and, and start to speak and proclaim and prepare. They're expecting literally the prophet Elijah from the Old Testament to return. But they were looking for the wrong thing. John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, when his mouth is finally opened and he can speak, he rejoices in Luke 1, 16-17 that John would turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the father to the children, the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Zechariah understood his son was coming as Elijah, in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the people back. Now John was like Elijah in a lot of ways. They both wore camels here. They both lived in the wilderness at times. They were both on the outskirts of society. They were both radical prophets of repentance. But the connection runs much deeper than that. What Jesus means when he says that John is the Elijah to come is that this coming Elijah fulfills Malachi's prophecy, of course, but that John is this figure coming in the spirit and power of Elijah to prepare the people for the coming day of the Lord. That's a big implication. If John is Elijah, then the day of the Lord, this day of judgment and salvation, is coming. John is preceding that. He's a marker that that day is coming. What should the people of Israel done? They should have stopped and considered that. This day of judgment and salvation is coming. Those who fear my name will be Saved, but the wicked and arrogant who turn away from the Lord will not. Uh, I probably should consider where I stand in that equation, right? But again, right, the Jews expected a literal Elijah to come and usher in an era of peace. And, and then the Gentiles and unfaithful Jews would be destroyed. That's how they expected this to play out. But that's clearly not what Jesus has said is going to happen. We need to make sure we understand the day of the Lord clearly too because a lot of the times when we hear that phrase, the day of the Lord, where do we look? We look way off in the future, way off in the future to the last day, right? Where uh, the final judgment happens, where God judges the earth, where Christ returns. That's what a lot of people think of when we think the day of the Lord. And that is the day of the Lord. That's true. That's not the only the day of the Lord though. For example, in Isaiah chapter 13, Isaiah describes the coming destruction of Babylon as the day of the Lord. He talks about all the same signs in the sky that we associate with end times events, but Isaiah says, no, these things are happening in the destruction of Babylon in 539 B.C. So when we think the day of the Lord, we shouldn't think a far-off future event. We should think those moments in history where God comes in judgment and salvation, whether that be with Babylon whether that be with Assyria, whether that be against uh, the Roman Empire, right? Whether that be against Jerusalem, whether that be against the whole earth in the end of time. That day of judgment and salvation. 
So let's bring that understanding into how Jesus sees John fulfilling Malachi 4, 5 through 6. John is the one, this Elijah, preceding the day of the Lord, the coming day of God's wrath and salvation. When does this happen? When does this happen? What happens at the cross? What happens at the cross? God's wrath is poured out upon sin, our sin, which brings salvation to us. God's wrath and salvation meet in that moment, the day of the Lord at the cross. It'll happen again later in A.D. 70 when Jerusalem is judged by God through the siege of Rome. But the Christians in Jerusalem are all able to escape. Not one perishes in that siege. So the day of the Lord is coming. The people should have been looking ahead and considering, okay, if John's Elijah, I better get things in order. I better consider where I stand with the God of the universe. And friends, when we consider the coming day of the Lord, that's a good question for us to ask too. Where do I stand with the Lord? Have I found salvation in Christ Jesus? Have I listened to His words and trusted in Him? Or have I blown it off as insignificant? Jesus implies that the hearts of the people should have turned back to the Lord, but that doesn't seem to be the case. Jesus even highlights this in In verse 15 of Matthew chapter 11, when he says, let those who have ears hear. In other words, there's going to be many who don't hear, but the ones who by God's providence and work have their ears opened, let them hear and understand and act accordingly. Ultimately, by comparing John to Elijah, Jesus once again equates his first coming with this coming day of the Lord, another claim to deity from Jesus himself. It's woven all throughout Matthew's gospel, isn't it? Jesus is the same God of the Old Testament, the second person of the Trinity in flesh. And now that Jesus has laid these things out for the crowd, now that he's explained these things in clear detail, he's going to now turn to their response and press them a little bit. He's going to have some hard words for the crowd, as we see in verses 16 through 19. See that John and Jesus ultimately are rejected by their generation. Jesus has just explained these amazing things about John the Baptist, laid out these amazing implications for his own deity, but it appears that the people have not responded as they should have. In verse 16, Jesus says, but to what shall I compare this generation? That word but there kind of tells us, ah, things aren't going how, how they should be, right? I went to the store, but there was no milk. Right? Things not going how they should, how we would expect. And the response of Jesus' generation is not how it should be either. And Jesus makes a comparison to illustrate the response of this generation. And that phrase, this generation, it appears 12 times in Matthew's gospel. It's probably important, right, if it's appearing that many times. 12 times. We should understand this phrase when it appears in its literal, natural sense. This generation refers to the actual generation of people of first century Palestine, those hearing John and Jesus, they're chronological contemporaries. And Jesus compares the people of Judea in verse 16 to children sitting in the marketplaces, calling out to their playmates, right? So we, we think in our mind of this picture of two groups of kids. We have the group calling out to their playmates, and then we have the, the playmates here, right? We have the ones being called to. And in verse 17, Jesus says these, these children calling out They say, we've played the flute for you, playmates, but you didn't dance. 
we sang a dirge for you and you did not mourn, right? Playing this, the flute and, and dancing, that was something done in weddings, times of joy and celebration. We played the flute for you, but you didn't dance. You didn't do what we thought you would do. We didn't do what you're supposed to do. Singing a dirge was something done at funerals. We, we, we sang a dirge for you, but you didn't mourn. That's what you should be doing. You should be mourning. What's Jesus saying here in this comparison? He's saying that the crowds have these expectations of what John and Jesus should be. The crowds have these ideas of what Jesus and John should be doing, and their moods change all the time. They're fickle and moody, demanding that their playmates do as they please. The crowds look at John and Jesus and they go, well, they probably should meet our expectations. We want them to be what we want them to be. But they haven't submitted themselves to John and Jesus, right? They're uh, expecting John and Jesus to submit themselves to the whims of the crowds. They wanted Jesus and John to fit their agenda rather than following the path that God has laid out through John and Jesus. And verses 18 and 19 describe this response even further. On one end of the spectrum, we have John. John came neither eating nor drinking. <clears throat> right? He, he didn't eat and drink normally. He lived a rough, ascetic life. He ate bugs. He ate honey. He, he uh, lived out in the wilderness. It was very uh, a life of self-denial, we could say. Right? And their response to that, he has a demon. He has a demon. Sounds like something the Pharisees might have said about John, doesn't it? Uh, it maybe suggests that the people were actually following the Pharisees' opinion of John rather than esteeming him like Jesus does. But on the other end of the spectrum, we have John over here living this rough, rugged, denying yourself life, bugs and honey. On the other end of the spectrum, we have the Son of Man. In verse 19, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. Right? He, Jesus lives a normal life. Life, overall, we see Jesus feasting. We see Jesus drinking wine. Jesus is, he's living, a, he's living a fine life. He's not overindulging, but he's enjoying the good things in life, right? And what do they say about him on the other end of the spectrum? He's a drunkard and a glutton, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So they weren't happy with John, but then the other <laughs> opposite, right? They're not happy with that either. They're unhappy with either of them, like these children. And once again, this criticism of being a drunkard and a glutton, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, that sounds exactly like a criticism of the Pharisees that we've already seen in Matthew so far. It seems, again, that perhaps the Pharisees were swaying the people against John and Jesus. So John's too radical and rigorous. They're not satisfied with him. But when Jesus comes and he's more normal and enjoys feasting and, and drinking wine, they're not satisfied with him either. They are just like these children. They could not get John and Jesus to be what they wanted. They could not get them to do and say what they wanted. But according to Jesus, verse 19, wisdom is justified by her deeds. And what does Jesus mean when he says this? And one commentator helpfully adds that the things John and Jesus did and proclaimed demonstrated that they were um, messengers, we could say, of the divine wisdom, which sent the Jews exactly what they needed. God in his wisdom sent John and Jesus to prepare the people and to bring salvation. And yet they did not see it. Divine wisdom was on John and Jesus' side and that would be proven eventually. 
But the trouble is that natural sinful man cannot accept or approve divine wisdom. They call it foolishness. And so the wisest, I mean, Jesus is really wisdom incarnate in a way, is he not? And yet they rejected him. Jesus' words here are words of condemnation from our Lord about his own generation. And as we'll see next week, Jesus is going to continue in his judgment of them as we look at the next portion of Matthew 11. But as we reflect on this morning's text, as we consider what Jesus has said and the implications, there's a couple points of application that we can take away here. Uh, First, we must take great care not to try to make Jesus fit our whims. We must take great care not to try to squeeze God into an image that we ourselves have made of him. He is not Plato. He is not a God to be fashioned into an idol of our own making and our own opinions. He is the living God who created all things. And so what should we do instead? We should do all we can in reading God's word, in communing with him, to know him as he is. Our prayer should be, Lord, help me to think of you as you are not as I want you to be. In our modern day, people tend to make Jesus a soft, mild figure who's tolerant of sin. He had some good teachings, to be sure, but he was just kind of a good, a good guy, right? He was more concerned with just loving your neighbor. That's all that mattered to Jesus. But that's not who Jesus is. He is God incarnate. And he will not accommodate himself to our preconceived notions. He will not submit to us. Instead, we must submit ourselves to him. Uh, a few decades back, scholars, right, scholars always getting in trouble. They uh, decided to go through the New Testament and try to pull out the real sayings and real pictures of Jesus. This was called the Quest for the Historical Jesus Project. And so, you know, these scholars go to the New Testament, they pull out all the sayings of Jesus, all the works that, okay, we think maybe that's legitimate, maybe somebody added that in later. That was a made-up part, you know, in the, in the gospel. Um, and they, they tried to pull out this picture, and they all had different versions of it. And one of them, upon reflecting on this project, uh, said something along the lines of, you know, we all tried to find this picture of Jesus, but it was really just our own reflection. What did they do? They, they just really created this image of Jesus that looked a lot like them and what they thought was right and what they wanted. They didn't submit themselves to who he truly is. They didn't accept all of Scripture. And that brings uh, to, to our second point here that we must take seriously the testimony of our Lord and His messengers regarding Himself. We see in this passage that the the testimony of John and Jesus reveals that Jesus is none other than God in the flesh. Now that sounds like a crazy thing to believe, right, to many people. But if we are going to love Jesus, if we are going to follow Jesus, then we better listen to what He says. We better take what He says seriously. We better uh, believe, yes, there is a day of judgment and a day of salvation. And we better hear his words, believe them, and do them. And finally, number three, we can be encouraged. If we are faithful to confess Christ before men, especially, like John was, then Christ will be faithful to commend us too. Now, John wasn't perfect. We saw his own struggle a couple weeks ago. But he was faithful to do what God called him to do at great cost to himself. He confessed Christ before others. And as we see here this morning, Christ upheld and esteemed John before the crowds. J.C. Ryle notes that there is something very beautiful and comforting about this to true Christians. He says it shows us the tender interest 
which our great head feels in the lives and characters of his members. It shows us what honor he is ready to put on the work and labor they go through in his cause. It is a sweet foretaste of the confession that he will make of us before the assembled world when he presents us faultless at the last day before his Father's throne. John endured great suffering, but can you imagine how encouraged he would have been to hear Jesus' words that day? Greatly encouraged. And so, brothers and sisters, be encouraged too that as you serve the Lord, as you labor faithfully for Him, as you confess Christ before others, your Lord will commend you before His own Father in heaven. And that is really the greatest thing we could ever want is to hear our Lord say, well done. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for sending John the Baptist to prepare the way for Jesus and that through John you reveal such amazing things about who Jesus is. What an amazing thing, O oh Lord, that you, the God of the universe, would take on humanity in the second person of your Trinity, drawing near to us in the most unexpected way possible. That you, Lord Jesus, would take on human flesh, a human nature, that you would walk on this earth as one of us. And we thank you, Lord, for no mere man could be our Redeemer. So we thank you in your wisdom, Lord, that you have given us a Savior who is both fully God and fully man, able to be our mediator, to stand between us as sinners and a holy God and to reconcile us together. Oh, Lord, would you lift our eyes to the glory of Christ all the more after what we've seen today in this text. May we think even more highly of Christ Jesus and may our worship of him become greater and deeper. Lord, we love you and thank you for the testimony about Jesus that we read in your word. We pray this in his name. Amen.